When you think of God, I wonder what it is you think of. There are many good things we would say about the Lord. Of course, we could say that he is our heavenly father, and that is absolutely true. We would say that he is sovereign, that he, and that is absolutely true. We would say that he is holy, and he is pure, and he loves his people, and that one day, yes, he will judge the earth, and that is all absolutely true. He is our Father, our Great Shepherd, our God who loves us. But as part of his sovereignty and his love, he is also a fighter. He is the Lord of the heavenly hosts. Or in other words, he is the Lord of heaven's armies. And being one of the Lord's people does mean we're entering into warfare alongside him. The world was made by God. It is his. It belongs to him alone. But ever since the fall, humanity has been in rebellion against him. He has offered peace to us through the gospel. And those who believe are no longer at war with him. They can be accepted as one of his people, but the fact still remains that it's as if we live in occupied territory. We ourselves are attacked by the world. We're attacked by the devil or even by our own sinful nature. The Christian life is, a, in many ways, a battle. It's not one that we fight with swords or guns, but with prayer and the gospel. But a battle is what it is. And so when we read Judges or other violent parts of the Bible, we don't need to feel squeamish, though maybe we do. This isn't just horrible history for Christians, you know, an interesting story to grab our attention. It's not just simply a collection of gore. Instead, it shows us how the Lord has fought for his people again and again. It shows us in historical terms. It shows us in physical terms what the Lord is doing in the spiritual warfare around us today. And if you get nothing else from this sermon, the one thing that I want you to know deep in your hearts is that when God fights, he always wins always and i'm not asking you just to turn off now you can't just go to sleep but that's the one thing if nothing else i want you to get from this morning there's no doubt about where the history of this planet is headed it is guaranteed that god's enemies will be defeated you know sometimes you hear people when they speak of human rights about needing to be on the right side of history maybe you've heard that phrase on the right side of history but the right side of history is God's side in history. Be on his side and you will be on the winning side. Now our passage this morning does not start well. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Moses had led the Israelites into the, to the promised land Joshua had led them into conquering it, but ever since, the Israelites have been rebelling against the Lord. It was a cycle that repeats itself throughout the book of Judges. The people would turn from God and they would worship false gods. The Lord would judge them 
and let them be conquered by enemy nations. You know, if you want to live like pagans, then be ruled by pagans. Well, the Israelites would then cry out for help. The Lord would grant them a deliverer who freed them. But then, as time passed, they would forget the lessons. The next generation would come along, and they would turn from God, and the cycle would repeat itself all over again. Now, in Judges 4, our passage this morning, their last judge, Ehud, has died. They were now worshipping false gods, and as a consequence of that, he's given them over to King Jabin. Again, if they want to live like pagans, they can be ruled by pagans. But life under King Jabin is hard. The king's army is a commander by the name of Sisera, and he oppresses the Israelites, we're told, with 900 chariots of iron. They're probably wooden chariots with the iron laid up on the outside to make them difficult to attack. They were the super weapons of their day. They were able to ride across the flat plains at terrifying speeds. They could trample and they could cut down enemy troops. And when Sisera does win in combat, he takes women into slavery as their prize. Deborah Song puts it like this in chapter 5. A girl or two for each man, colourful garments as plunder for Sisera. He is a warlord and a human trafficker. And the Israelites have been cruelly oppressed by him for 20 years. Their life of the region has ground to a halt. Deborah tells us again in her song that the roads were abandoned. Travellers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased. People too scared to travel openly. Villages were abandoned. Against this dark background, the Lord hears the cry of his people and goes to war for them. He defeats Sisera. He defeats King Jabin. And when the Lord goes to war, we see three things. The first, he called on his people to join him. Secondly, he fought with infinite power. And finally, he totally crushes his enemies. So firstly, he called his people to join him. Have a look at verses 4 to 10. And he did that principally through Deborah and Barak. You know, before the fight back even begins, God has raised up Deborah as a judge and prophetess, and she is leading the Israelites. She has a real authority to her. The place where she's where she heard people's cases was named after her the palm of deborah so this is a local landmark where she would try cases now men and women are totally equal in god's eyes they are made to complement one each other um and people sometimes ask has deborah here taken a man's role all the other judges in this book are men and if you know your Scottish church history, you know that very famously, the Scottish church, the Scottish Presbyterian church was founded by John Knox, who had some very strong opinions against the idea of women rulers in this first blast of the trumpet. And so people have taken that view. But Deborah here is not shown in a negative light. She's not shown as, as, well, as, if, as if she is second best. She is shown as a godly, strong woman doing the work that God has called her to. There were roles, obviously, 
which were reserved for men in the Old Testament, things like being priests, just as the role of elder in the church is reserved is reserved for men today. But she is a judge, and she is also a prophetess, just like Miriam, Moses' sister, was a prophetess, or just like Anna in Luke 2. Remember when Jesus is presented in the temple after his birth, and the prophetess Anna celebrates the Lord? It isn't wrong for women to govern a nation. And that might sound like common sense to some of you, but that's something that I just have to say because that idea is out there. You know, Britain is not in rebellion against God because we have Queen Elizabeth on the throne or Theresa May as Prime Minister or Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister. Now, Deborah calls herself a mother in Israel with a great love for her nation. She uses her gifts and talents in ways which are totally appropriate. She is governing well. She is restoring the social fabric of this war-ravaged land. Where there has been nothing but injustice, she is bringing justice. She's rebuilding a broken nation. She's reminding them that they are to live by God's rules. But she isn't a warrior. So instead it says that she sent for Barak. Barak is a military leader, the leader of 10,000 men. He hears God's call to war and he responds. But there is a small problem. He wants Deborah to go with him. You know, he says, if you go with me, I will go. But if, I, if you don't go with me, I won't go. You know, despite hearing the command from the Lord, he is hesitant. The Lord may have commanded it, but he isn't quite sure if he can rely on it. Now, this might seem like normal hesitancy, but in the book of Joshua, the Israelites fight against an earlier king, Jabin. He was also from the same area, and that was one of the most spectacular victories in all of Israel's history. So here is Barak facing another king from the same region, being told by God, go and fight for me and I will give you victory. And it should have twigged in his mind, oh, the Lord's done this once, I can do it again. But instead, he is hesitant. He doesn't want to act on what the Lord has called him to do. It reminds me of a story of a pair of newlyweds. And they had taken very traditional vows, you know, where the wife had promised to always honor and obey her husband. A few weeks into the marriage, the husband thought that this would be a good thing to remind his wife of. And he said, as lovingly as he could, darling, you promised that you would obey me. And she said, of course I did but only when you were right. <laughs> and I think sometimes with the Lord, we can have the same thing. You know, God, I will do whatever you want me to do. I will step out in faith. I will happily, you know, send me to the far edges of the world just as long as it seems sensible for me to do that. <laughs> as long as it doesn't conflict with any of the views that I might already have. Now, can leave the wisdom of the young couple to one side. But we should have a greater response, shouldn't we, to the Lord when he calls us to do things than to say, well, look, does this make sense to me? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, 
Barak is told by Deborah that she will do as he asks, but it will not be him who gets the glory for this victory. Instead, he's told that a woman will get the honor of killing Sisera. His lack of faithful obedience has mean that he has lost out in some ways. But at the same time, it would be wrong to view Barak as a total wimp. Despite his faults, Barak is praised in Scripture. You know, in her song, Deborah praises God for Barak and other commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly. You know, Hebrews 11 in the New Testament lists Barak as one of the heroes of the faith, somebody that we are meant to learn from. So at least he answered the call. Many of the tribes of Israel didn't even come to help. Reuben, Gilead, Dan, they all discuss it, but they don't want to get involved. What does the song say? Curse Meroz, said the angel of the Lord, because they did not come to the help of the Lord. So let's learn from Barak's example, both the good and the bad. God prefers those who do, even if what they do is imperfect, over those who talk about it but don't. It's very easy to be critical of other people's efforts in the church or in the denomination, whatever else it might be, but are we prepared to serve the Lord when he calls us to do so? But let's also learn to be wholehearted when the Lord calls us to do something. Romans 12, which you looked at during the summer, remember, says it in this way, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. We don't need to be reassured by God every moment of every day. We can look at the history of what he has already accomplished. We can look at what the Bible tells us and then from that trust him enough to dedicate ourselves to following him wherever he takes us. We have his example for us. Let us follow it. Well, if God calls his army, then he then goes to fight with infinite power. Have a look down at verses 12 to 16 in chapter 4. The battle looks like it should have been a cakewalk for Sisera. His army was next to the river Kishon. It's just a very large, wide, open plain. It's perfect terrain for him and his chariots. They would be able to decimate an opposing army. They would be able to get up speed. They'd be able to cut down enemy foot troops. Should have been easy. And it might have been easy if they had only been fighting a human army with human strength. But he wasn't. He was fighting the Lord. And Deborah announces to Barak, This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Deborah's song fills us in on the rest of the details of what happened. The Lord stepped out in awesome power. The earth trembled. Before him, mountains quaked before the Lord. The whole of creation turns against Sisera. From heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The heavens dropped, yes, the clouds dropped water, until eventually the river Kishon swept them away. See, 
Chariots work great on flat, empty, solid ground. But when it gets muddy, when the rain comes down and it clogs up the earth, those wheels of the chariot sink in and they get stuck. See, God chose the battle site perfectly. He denounced it by Deborah in verse 7. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. And then, once he was in position, he made it rain until the Kishon burst its banks, flooding the plains. Many of Sisera's troops were swept away, gone in an instant. The 900 chariots of iron sink into the mud. What had once been the fastest, most deadly weapon in their arsenal now becomes a death trap for anybody who's in one. Their occupants are f- fixed in position as Barak and his troops charge down the hill to cut them to pieces. All of the success comes from God. Verse 15 puts it very clearly. The Lord routed Sisera. Were Barak and the 10,000 important to God's work? Of course they were. Absolutely. They are to be remembered and they are to be celebrated for their work that day. But the thanksgiving and the praise all go to the Lord. Without God's intervention, then the Israelites might have just been one more conquest in a long list of Sisera's conquests. See, the truth is that we are all weak. We live in a culture, sometimes even a church culture, which thinks one's own strength is the most important thing. We're very easily impressed by the size of a church, or by the amount of influence somebody else has, or by their personal wealth, or how big their business is. But that's not the way the Bible speaks. God purposely uses weak people. He uses impossible situations to make it clear that he is the one giving the victory. He is the one who's going to win the fight. The New Testament puts it like this. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. A jar of clay, it's easily broken. If you drop it, it's gone forever. But the Bible says that's what we are. The Lord has said that we, his people, are to be entrusted with his gospel. We're to be entrusted with his mission and we are as strong as a jar of clay. By our strength, we would be defeated in a moment, in an instant. And for each one of us, those weaknesses will be different. You will feel them differently depending on who you are. Some of us, it might be physical. Some of us, it might be mental health issues. Some of them, for some of us, it might be that we fight against horrendous opposition at work or in families. For some of us, it might be that our temptations seem to grip hold of us and we fight with everything we can to stay pure. In the world's eyes, we are nothing much. But God says, My grace is sufficient for you, 
For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Brothers and sisters, it's okay to be weak in the world's eyes. You don't have to be to pretend to be stronger than you really are. When God fights, he fights with all his might. His infinite power is poured out on all his enemies. And it is his power that we are to rely on. Now, I'm not saying that it's okay to indulge your sin or to give into temptation. We are to strive with everything we have for the sake of the Lord. It all belongs to him. But admit your weaknesses and rely on God to fight for you. Stand against all the attacks that this world will give you, knowing the Lord is in your corner. He is the one you need, not yourself, because he fights with infinite power. And it is only in our weaknesses that that power can be shown to the world around us. Well, finally, God crushes his enemies. After the battle, we're told that Sisera abandoned his chariot. He abandoned any of his troops that might have been left behind and ran on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canite. As Jael invites Sisera in, he thought he was safe. The Lord would not be able to get to him. He could escape God's judgment and live to fight another day. But of course, the presence of Jael is no accident. It did not catch the Lord by surprise that he would run to this location. I wonder when we read the passage or when the passage was read for us, did you notice verse 11 in chapter 4? Maybe it seems out of place to us. I mean, why do we need to know that Haber, the Canaanite, left the other Canaanites and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanamanin near Kadesh? Why does it matter to us where he decides to camp? Well, it's sending a clear message that God in his providence is orchestrating events. The rest of the Canaanite tribe all live much further to the south. Moving this far north was really unusual. The Lord has moved his, his people into position. Jael's tent is in the right place at the right time in order to trap Sisera. He is lord in. Jael gives him a rug to cover himself, gives him milk to make him sleepy, and then finally kills him. When Barak comes in pursuit of Sisera, he finds the warlord has been slain. Deborah's prophecy has been fulfilled. The Bible is clear. This was God's doing. Verse 23, on that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. And it's equally clear that Jael did a good thing. In Deborah's song, she sings, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite, most blessed of, of tent-dwelling women. Now, in the ancient world, it was considered shameful for a man to be defeated by a woman in combat. 
In fact, later on in the book of Judges, if you read further ahead, you'll get to a guy called Abimelech. He has one of his own men kill him rather than die from a wound that he received from a woman. And also, putting up tents in the ancient world was considered to be women's work. You know, they would go ahead and they would set up the camp. So Jael would have been very used to handling a hammer and a peg. So there is this deep irony in Sisera's death. Sisera was a man who treated women as plunder, handing them out to his men however he wanted. And then, in his defeat, he is found in a woman's bedchamber, not abusing her for his own pleasure, but killed by her in what, for the ancient world, was possibly the most feminine way possible. The death fits the crime. But there's another reason why this death is appropriate. From Genesis 3 onwards, God promises his people one who will come and defeat Satan. In the language of Genesis 3, it is one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. And the death of Sisera points forward in graphic terms to Christ's victory on the cross. Satan attacked Jesus throughout his ministry. He tried to tempt Jesus, but he failed. Jesus exercised demons from people, and Satan failed once again. Satan never stopped trying. He whipped up crowds against Jesus. He worked to have Jesus condemned. Satan even entered into Judas to betray him. And the cross probably looked like it should be a great victory for Satan. The forces of evil have the incarnate Son of God nailed to a cross to execute him. But it was revealed to be Satan's greatest defeat. The events had been under the sovereignty of God all along. Jesus went willingly to the cross and paid for the sins of his people. Satan, the accuser of God's people, is now faced with a people of God who have been rescued from sin and death. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan may rage against God's people. He will attack us in the church, at home, in our workplaces, wherever he can. He may persecute us. He may tempt us. He will say to us that sin is no big deal to indulge in whatever we feel like. Then he will tell us that we are failures if we give in and that God has given up on us. But the truth is that for all those who believe, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Satan is a dangerous enemy, but ultimately, he is one whose head has been bruised and he cannot be victorious over God's people. God crushed the enemy in the tent of Jael on that day to free his people. And he has, victor- and he has been victorious over our greatest enemies at the cross. In a moment, 
I will finish. But just notice that the death of Cicero was not the end of the war. There were still other battles to fight. Their success, though, was absolutely guaranteed. Verse 24, And at the hand of the Israelites... Sorry. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. We are in a very similar position today. The greatest battle has been won at the cross, but there are still smaller battles to be fought each day. You know, it's like detail has occurred, but we're still in occupied territory. And we will be until Jesus returns. Now, I don't know all of you personally. I don't know your hearts. But some of you, if you're not believers, are like the subjects of King Jabin. You are serving the wrong king. And we know that God has had a great victory. And we know that he will win this war. But maybe God is still your enemy. Well, unlike the book of Judges, God gives you the opportunity to switch sides. That you can leave your old life behind and come and live in his kingdom and serve the true king. Maybe you've thought about that for a while and you think, well, we've got plenty of time to think about it. Maybe you're not like Sisera. Maybe nothing bad will ever happen to you when you sleep. Well... Maybe. But I would just remind you of Paul's words that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The offer of peace of God is through his gospel. It's made to you this morning if you're not a believer. Accept it. Know his eternal love. You don't need to be strong enough. You don't need to be good enough. Quite the opposite. Admit that you are weak. Admit that you cannot save yourself by your own strength. And come to him. My friends, this morning, why would you fight against God when he is so eager to fight for you? But if you are a believer and you do know the Lord is on your side, then let us all continue to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to him. Let us be willing to serve him in our weaknesses. Let us be willing to trust him in what he has already accomplished. And let's look forward to that glorious day, which is guaranteed when the battle is over and the victory is his. And we will know peace forever under the reign of our King Jesus. Amen. Let us pray.